Well, I have been in a series, of course, <laughs> over the past several months now. It's been since uh, early February when I began this series. The name of the series is called The Case for Grace, Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. And today, I'm going to minister for a little while through a message, and the religious people are going to lose their cotton-picking minds when they see the name of this message, exempt from moral and mortal liability. Now, as shocking as that sermon title is, I can assure you that I have not lost all of my marbles. <laughs> They're still there. And I can promise you I'm not under the delusion of a strange gospel. But moreover, I believe that I can prove through the scriptures that believers are wonderfully, totally exempt from moral and mortal liability. Listen to me carefully. As the agents of their righteousness retention. That means there must be a group of people that believe righteousness ebbs and flows. It comes and goes based upon your behavior. But if you've sat under these messages long enough here at Triumphant Grace Ministries, I think you're pretty much established in the truth that righteousness does not come and go. It does not ebb and flow. It is there to stay. Believers can never be exhaustively free in their souls. The soul is the mind. It's the will. It's your emotional realm. And believers cannot be, I mean, literally totally free, exhaustively free, nothing left free until they discover that they are perfectly innocent apart from their performance. Again, we live in a world that wants us to perform, do tricks, do things to prove. No. Grace contains the power, the ability, if you will, the privilege to release believers from the obligation of right and wrong behavior as their measuring stick. My behavior is my measuring stick. No, grace will release you from that mindset. It will release you from the DNA test results of right standing with the Father. Believe me, when the DNA test tells you that he's your Father, there'll not be another one that comes along to tell you anything different. God will remain your Father. And the Scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit bears witness in our spirit, bears witness in our soul, that we're children of God. So we have that inner witness. We were made the righteousness of God in Christ by believing, not behaving. The disciples would ask Jesus, they would say, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? I think that's a fair question, don't you? What do you want me to do? What are we supposed to do? What do we need to get involved in? How do we need to busy ourselves so that we know that we're doing God's works? Now, that was the question they asked him. Fair question. Don't throw him under the bus. Fair question. I mean, if I came to your house because you're moving, you asked me to come and move, I would say, what do you want me to do? I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? 
And so they asked that question, and Jesus responded with these words. He said, the work of God is this. This, not these. If I have one marble, it's a this marble. If I have two marbles, it's a these marble, right? Jesus said, this is the work of my Father. What's the work of the Father? What's the work that Jesus said I want you to do? He said, to believe. Now see, the spiritual don't like that because there's got to be more than that. That's too simple. That's too basic. You got to run around the church in the spirit. But that's not what it's about. But Jesus said, the work that I want you to do, come on now. He said, believe. Can you accept that? Are you going to get bored with that? Are you going to say, that's not enough? Not me. It's the way I live my life, friends. Now, if you want to have an all-night prayer meeting, fine, that's okay. But at that prayer meeting, believe. If you want to go on a fast for 40 days, been there, done that, come on, then just believe. But don't let those events be the main event. The main event is to believe, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's straightening them out from what works must we do to the work. The work is to believe. Believe what? He says to believe in the one that he sent. Pretty simple Christianity, isn't it? Nothing complicated about that. Jesus summed it up with that. He said, that's what you need to do. Just believe. Because once you start believing, you know what you'll find? You'll find love flows out of that belief system. When you believe on Christ, that means you're trusting in Christ. You're abandoning everything else. You're trusting in him. You're believing in him. Because that's what that word means. Believe means to trust. Rely upon. Put your faith in. That's what that word means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, whosoever trusts in him, whosoever puts their faith in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's what Jesus said. Please make note. I read it a couple times yesterday. I was waiting to see, did Jesus say anything about please behave. See, it's not about behavior, friend. It's about believing. That's what Jesus said. Now, I agree that believing and behaving, they look alike, they sound alike, but they are polar opposites when it comes to God's plan of salvation. There is no such thing as behaving enough to enter in to God's plan of salvation. So let's ask the question, come on, because I know you're thinking it. Should right and wrong behavior still matter to us? Remember, Jesus didn't say behave, he said believe. So does right and wrong behavior still matter to us? Should they matter to us? That's exactly right. Of course they matter to us. Absolutely. Not because it endangers or ensures our salvation, but because through our behavior, 
we express love. You can't mistreat someone and be showing them love at the same time. It just doesn't work. That's an oxymoron. A love that is patient and kind. How many of you know of that kind of love? Patient and kind. That's a great kind of love, isn't it? A love that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Come on, that's a good kind of love. In other words, it doesn't get caught up in the evil thoughts and involvement, but it has a way of bringing you back into rejoicing with the truth. It talks about a love that always protects, always trusts. Remember what I said a minute ago? Jesus said that. Always hopes and always perseveres. I'm talking about a love that never fails. Simply put now, our behavior matters to other people. Our behavior matters to God because he wants us to represent him well. We're like ambassadors in a sense that we represent the kingdom. We represent the government. And anytime I've ever been put on an assignment to go do something, whether it's been for my work or for the church, I represent who is sending me well. Because I know at the same time, I'm representing my father. And so it matters to others. It should matter to you. Would you like to have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with your spouse? Would you like to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with your children, your family, your friends, your neighbors, the strangers, your co-workers? Would you like to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship? Then behave in love. Walk in love. Be grounded in love. Be knitted together in love. Abound in love. And then speak the truth in love. But once again, please understand that our perfectly behaved thoughts and actions and words are not the glue. It's not the adhesive, if you will, that adheres us to the Father or exempts us from moral and mortal liability. Jesus has already taken care of that through his blood. It is the love of Christ. It's the love of Jesus dwelling on the inside of us that exempts us from moral and mortal liability. How many of you have ever been cut in your life and you've seen your own blood? Just raise your hand. Come on. Come on now. Is there anybody that's never been cut and seen your own blood? That would surprise me. And how many of you know by experience that within, I would say, 30 seconds or so of shedding your blood, your blood begins to coagulate? It begins to gel up a little bit, changing from a liquid to a gel, and then it kind of hardens. Why does it do that? Why does it go from the liquid to the gel to the hardened? That's because our super smart God designed our blood so that the platelets will stick together to form a protective covering over our blood vessels when they're wounded. Therefore, platelets' primary function is to prevent and stop bleeding. Now, the same thing is 
with grace. Grace not only saves us, but grace is there to treat our wrongheaded thoughts and emotions when they rupture and begin hemorrhaging all over the place. Our bleeding thoughts and emotions will show up in the form of things like this. Loneliness, failure, rejection, fear, guilt, shame, condemnation. <laughs> Grace, it becomes literally the tourniquet around our bleeding heart when we're wounded deep in our heart. We were singing one of the songs about that this morning. It's in times like this when we are hurting that we truly find out that the scripture is fulfilled. God, he's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he does that because he loves us. How many of you remember the Johnson & Johnson commercial, I am stuck on Band-Aid? Come on. And Band-Aid stuck on me. You remember that one? Grace is so much more robust than that. Grace is there for us when literally our emotional branches have been sawed off by religion. And it happens more times than what you know. Grace is the remediation when our soulish root system wicks up poisonous lies. I'm telling you, there's one antidote for that, and it's grace. We are like trees. When Jesus healed the blind man, Jesus asked him, what do you see? He said, I see men walking around like trees. We are like trees in lots of ways that we have a trunk, we have limbs, we have appendages. We're like a tree in a lot of ways. And because we have a root system, that root system is our mind. It's not our feet, but it's our mind. And our mind has this ability to wick things up, kind of like the bounty, the quicker picker-upper, you know, just set it on the spill and it just wicks it up. That's our minds for you, friends. Always wicking things up. And grace has the ability to go into a mind that has wicked up poisonous lies like you will never matter in life. Like nobody loves you. Like God will turn his back on you someday. Grace has the ability, the power, the privilege to harness those emotions for the moment so that you don't bleed all over the place and gather you in like a hen would gather her chicks under her wing and brood over you and just love you and speak truth and grace into your heart. That's what grace does. And so we've so underestimated this grace. You say to somebody, define grace for me. Oh, that's what you say before a meal. Well, yes and no. <laughs> it's a form of it, being thankful. Because thankful and grace are rooted in the same word, hares. They both mean gracious thanksgiving. So yes, it's true. Well, grace is, you know what God does for you when you get saved. Yeah, that's true too. But that's not where grace leaves off at, friends. We need grace, as I've said before, every minute, every moment of the day. We need his loving grace showing up in our hearts, showing up in our minds, taking a look at our root system and going, you know what? You would function better in life if we just healed this area of your mind. And this is what the finished work of the cross does. 
When you realize that it's not about my performance. It's not about what I add to what Jesus has done. You can add nothing. Get rid of that religious mindset, friends. You are exempt from moral. That is like the Ten Commandments stuff. You are exempt from moral and mortal liability because of what Jesus has done for you alone. Grace not only teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, that's Titus, I believe chapter 2, but grace is also there. Come on, friends. This is not preached. Grace is also there to remind us that we are exempt. We don't participate. Exempt means it doesn't apply to you. But we walk in love. So it looks like we're trying to fulfill this. We're trying to fulfill the moral and mortal laws. We're trying to fulfill everything. Why? Because it shows up in love. Love that's kind. Love that's patient. Love that's not rude. Does not envy. Does not boast. Does not keep records of wrongs. That kind of love. It's an awesome love, isn't it? Is that the love you're walking in? Well, if it's not, don't worry. Jesus is working on that root system in your mind that wicked up some poisonous lies and garbage, and he is transforming your mind. That's why the scriptures tell us, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You see, the world will tell you, put on more bling bling. Get spinners for your tires. Uh, You know, put on gold watches. Get some gold teeth. That's the all external. Jesus said, that's not how you do it. You get transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as that begins to take place, you know what you'll figure out? I don't need all this stuff. I really don't. That's what grace looks like, friends. When a blood vessel is damaged, you know what the body does? I think this is fascinating. It's like it has a text message system in there. I mean, I can bump my hand real hard on the corner of that thing and draw blood, and instantly my body is sending a text message. It's sending a text message to your platelets, which instructs them. Oh, this is just so cool of God. You know what it does? It instructs them. It's like a GPS. It gives them the perfect highway to go to the perfect spot, to the perfect area, travel right to the injured area, and treat that area. Platelets are like the centennial that's on guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Always available, always on guard, doesn't take off for bad weather, doesn't take off when you're sleeping, always on guard. Thank God for those platelets, right? Always on duty. Now, when platelets arrive at the injured site, you know what they do? I love this part. They clump together to form a clot. And in that sense, they stop the bleeding, and this is good. This is good, friends. But when platelets get sticky like that, when they go awry and they start doing that on the inside of the body, that's called thrombosis. That is no longer good, friends. Thrombosis. And thrombosis is a potentially life-threatening formation of blood clots coming together inside your body, your legs, or wherever they may be. It can be lethal for you. Now, if you've 
ever been cut, then you can identify with the fact that spilled blood gets sticky, doesn't it? It gets sticky. Now, if Jesus' shed blood was not sufficient to stick us to him forever, and if his grace was not sufficient to preclude life-threatening formation of clumped-together sin and to exempt the believer from moral and mortal liability, then Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem that cannot be fixed. Think about it now. Think about his blood. I have a deep, deep, deep beyond admiration for his blood, a love for his blood, a fascination with his blood, because I know how powerful his blood is. And then I know that his blood is so sticky. <laughs> I mean, you can hang a fly trap, one of those old gooey fly traps, a fly lands on that thing, and all it does is buzz its wings, but it ain't going nowhere, is it? And that's how we are in Christ, friends. We are stuck on Christ, and Christ is stuck on us. Beautiful to think that his blood was insufficient, wasn't sticky enough. Oh, you got off. Sorry about that. You were kind of on the edge of my garment, and you got off. Oh, no, his blood is sticky. Very, very sticky. I hated sticky growing up. I still hate sticky. I don't even like seeing other people sticky. And seeing a kid with a sucker in his hands, I got to leave the room, friends, because I know that's going to end up on that kid's neck or someplace and all over eating cotton candy. Oh, that is the worst. All over your face. I hate sticky. But in this case, I love sticky. Because Jesus' blood is sticky enough, isn't it? But the reality is that Jesus' blood was sufficient. It was sticky enough to stick the bride of Christ to him forever. His blood was sufficient to place us in an environment where we would never have to be concerned again about the thrombosis of sin and condemnation. We are bone of his bones. We are flesh of his flesh. We are one flesh, one with Christ, stuck together forever. And this has always been God's heart. This has always been the Father's heart, his plan, his intent for humanity. This has always been his heart, that we would be stuck together. In Genesis, God said, let us make man and let us make him in our image and our likeness. And then he said, and let them have dominion over the earth. You're going to trust us with the earth? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, man was perfect at first. You trust him. And then after a while, Adam ran out of naming the animals and didn't have much going on, you know. But Adam saw that every animal had a helper. A male and female, but there was no female for Adam. I don't know as though Adam knew that, but God knew that. Isn't he a good God? See, he knows things we don't even know. And God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
I will make a helper, listen to these words, I will make a helper suitable for him. See how much he loves you? He made a helper suitable for Adam. The helper that God was referring to was a wife, Eve. Her name was Eve. And she would serve as a type and shadow of a more perfect helper that Jesus would send to us one day, namely the Holy Spirit. But the problem with both believer and unbeliever is that so many, so many choose a helper that is not suitable for them. Not talking about a spouse now, but they choose helpers in life that are not suitable for them. Law in place of grace is not a suitable helper. Law in place of grace is not a suitable helper. Works in place of faith is not a suitable helper. Band-aids in place of platelets, not a suitable helper. You will own stock in Johnson & Johnson before it's over with. I'm telling you, platelets are better. You would bleed to death otherwise. Behavior in place of believing is not a suitable helper. Do you see what I'm touching on right here? I'm touching on the stuff that the church falls for. They fall for the opposite, thinking that's going to be a suitable helper for them to maintain their righteousness. Mechanics in place of love. In other words, just going through the motions, tin soldier stuff, you know. I love you, honey. I love you, honey. Just show it. Mechanical stuff in place of true love is a poor helper. It's not a suitable helper. And performance, come on, and performance in place of all the promises of God is not a suitable helper. That's what got Abraham into trouble. Performance. Didn't want to wait on the promise that God had made him. I'm going to give you a son. And through him, all nations shall be blessed. But Abraham said, well, let me get my performance involved. No, promises, friends. Wait on the promises of God. If God has given you a promise, you wait. You tarry. (laughs) You sojourn. You just take some time off. You wait. The more you try to make it happen, the least it will come together, friends, because God has a perfect timing for everything. I know that to be true in my own personal life. I've seen it so many times. Now I just say, okay, Father, I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait on the promises. Inside our bodies, our platelets are kept inactive so as to prevent thrombosis. They become active when the body is damaged. And so it was with Jesus' blood His healing properties became active when he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. It was on the cross that his blood was applied to the entire man. Not just one section of the man, not just the spirit man, but the soulish man and the bodied man, the physical man. We are complete in him. We lack no good thing. Nothing missing, nothing broken, friends. Talk to your platelets. 
The platelets of your mind, quit telling them to run amok like something's broken and damaged. All that's causing is a thrombosis of fear. That's all. And it complicates the problem. It doesn't help. Now, God caused his son Adam to fall into a deep sleep. How many of you have read that? He fell into a deep sleep. And while Adam slept, God reached down inside Adam and he pulled Adam's bride from his side. She was in the shape of a rib. He had to do a little bit of work, you know, took her to the body shop. But when, but when, but when he was done, oh man, knockout.com, there's E for you, okay? He pulled her from Adam's side and the scriptures say he closed up the flesh instead thereof. In other words, he didn't leave a gaping hole in the side of Adam. The first Adam's sleep was the prototype of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Jesus is the last Adam. On the cross, Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead, on the cross, Jesus, the firstborn among brothers and sisters, would fall into a deep sleep. That sleep is called death. It's the same thing that Jesus said when Lazarus was dead. He said he's only sleeping, but he is dead. Jesus would fall into that deep sleep. And as Jesus slept, a spear in a Roman's hand would pierce Jesus' side And in the piercing of his flesh, a door in the side of the ark, come on, a door in the side of the ark, an opening, the portal for the bride of Christ to enter in was made available for all humanity, all mankind. Do you see the types and shadows? Nothing's wasted. In the coming to Christ, Every man has to pass through the coagulated blood and water of the Savior because he is, according to his own words, he is the only door. You got to come through him. In other words, every man that comes to God by faith is immersed. Come on. They have to pass through. They're immersed in the healing properties of Jesus Christ. Jesus had platelets too, friend. He was humanity. He was man. Properties that we don't deserve. Properties that can only be accessed by grace through faith. Properties that take away the thrombosis of sin, guilt, shame, and darkness. And properties that exempt every believer from mortal and moral liability. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we find these words. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. (laughs) I didn't think about this until just now. 
But how many of you know the Hebrew name for man is Ish? Real close to Ick, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's Ish. I-S-H, Ish. But the name for woman is Isha. Very, very similar. Man, whoa, man, whoa, man. Ish, Ugh. Isha. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, if I just said to you, there goes Isha. You know I'm not talking about Jim, right? <laughs> I'm talking about Valerie. Yeah. Isha. <laughs> and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave. Do you see how close those words are? Leave and cleave. Just add a C. <laughs> Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, let's get that part out of the way, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Do you see this, how he set this up in the natural, in the spiritual as well? Now I want you to see what the word cleave looks like, okay? from the Hebrew concordance. It's an interesting word, a word that we would seldomly use in our English vernacular. But behind our English word cleave, we find the Hebrew word davak. That's how it's pronounced, davak. So when it says, he shall leave his mother and father and cleave, he's saying he shall davak. He shall davak unto his wife. Davak, the Hebrew word for cleave, translates like this. To cleave, to adhere, especially firmly. Come on, that means really sticky, right? Especially firmly. I'm not making this stuff up. In the Hebrew concordance, it says, as if with glue, be glued together. This is what God had in mind, that you would stick together like glue. Now, I want to talk to you about some glues for just a second. I don't want to get off on too much of a <laughs> tangent here. One of the strongest adhesives in the world is an epoxy known as Delo Monopox. Let's see that, Justin. Now, what you're looking at here is just variations of how it comes in a can, in a syringe, uh, in a caulking tube. It's called Delo Monopox. Three grams, come on now, come on, bakers, three grams, not much. Three grams of this liquid. That's just a smidgen over a half a teaspoon. That's not much, is it? Three grams of Delomonopox can lift almost 40,000 pounds. What? 40,000 pounds, how does it do that? Because epoxy takes the two items that are being glued together, the two items that are being cleaved together, and it makes them one with each other on a molecular level. It takes the molecules from one and the molecules from the other one, whether that's board or metal, and it makes them one. That's pretty 
powerful if you think about it. Epoxy goes through three stages. Now, I've used this stuff before, so I know this firsthand. It goes through three stages. You don't have a lot of time, but once you start mixing it, it goes from the liquid stage. Come on, Jim, you can help me here, right? It goes from the liquid stage to the gel stage to the hardened stage. So liquid, gel, solid. Kind of like blood. Remember that? The blood. Liquid, coagulated, that's gel, and then solid. What I want us to take away from this concept here is this. Once cured, it cannot be uncured. There's no way to return to its original condition. No way. I don't care who you are as a scientist. You cannot put it back to its original condition. I have a question for you. Doesn't it stand to reason? Come on now. Think with me for a second. Don't be religious now. Doesn't it stand to reason that Jesus' blood might just be stronger than epoxy? Can you go out on the limb with me there for a second? Can you think with me just for a moment that that blood might just be stronger than this adhesive? Come on. I'd say it is. If your answer is yes, then once cured, always cured. See, people don't like that once saved, always saved stuff. They don't like that. <laughs> I think I'm going to move to this once cured, always cured thing. See, I went from the once saved, always saved, to the once his, always his, and I thought I dressed that up quite a bit better, and I did like that a little bit better because people want to fight with you too much on the once saved, always saved thing. Once his, always his. When I say once cured, always cured, they're going to say, what do you mean? It gives me an opportunity to do some teaching now. Once cured, always cured. Jesus' blood, friends, is what holds us together causes us to be one with him on so many levels, molecular, spiritual, whatever it may be. And it's his blood that exempts us from moral and mortal liability. Davak, the Hebrew word for cleave, listen to me carefully, is the same exact Hebrew word that Naomi, remember Naomi from the book of Ruth? Naomi used when she set out on her journey she had been in Moab. She had lost her husband to death there. She had lost her two sons. And after a bunch of years, she sets out to return to Bethlehem, the house of bread. She's on her journey, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, begin to follow her. And she turns around and stops, and she pleads with them to return home, go back home. Go back home. And then she goes on this little rant telling him, look, if I was to have a son today and you waited for 18 years and married my son, that's just too long. Go back home. Find another husband. This is the dialogue they're having, right? And so she is encouraging them, instructing them to return to Moab. The scriptures tell us that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and returned to the spiritually bankrupt, spiritually desolate land of Moab. But then the scriptures say, but Ruth, I love this, but Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth 
cleaved to Naomi. Ruth davak to Naomi. Ruth got a hold of Naomi and said, no! I've heard too many stories about your God. I've heard too many stories about your land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Beautiful, isn't it? The name Naomi comes from the Hebrew word Noam. Naomi, Noam. It means agreeable, delightful, beautiful, pleasant, splendor, and grace. Now, Naomi was so confused, so disappointed when she left Bethlehem and to lose her husband and two sons, it started messing with her mind. Her mind began to seep and take in the poisons of the lies. And Naomi wouldn't even refer to herself. She would say, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter. No, the Lord didn't make you bitter, Naomi. You believe lies that made you bitter. God named you perfectly right when he called you the pleasant one. So her name has got some really, really profound meaning to it. Friends, would you like to find your way out of the coagulated and desolate land of Moab, the land full of sacrificial religion? Because that's what it was. Sacrifice. Oh, Lord, I sacrifice for you. Stop it. Believe. Lord, I behave for you. No, stop it. Believe, Jesus said. Would you like to be free from the thrombosis of performance? Would you like to be free from that? Then don't kiss goodbye, the pleasant one, the delightful one, the beautiful one, the splendid one, the graceful one. As Ruth did to Naomi, we are to cleave to Jesus and his finished work. He's the only person that we can cling to, that we can become totally exempt from moral and mortal liability. You say, Pastor Mark? Okay. You've painted some pictures. I get all the imagery. I kind of believe what you're saying with most of my heart anyway. But I still struggle. Come on. Let's just let the rubber meet the road, okay? But I still struggle. I'm not talking financially. I mean, those are different things. I'm just talking about relationship. I'm talking about in your relationship with God. I'm still struggling there. And only you know what that struggle looks like. I'm still struggling with my emotions. I'm still running amok here and there. My feelings and emotions are a coagulated thrombosis of despair. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed from this emotional tug of war. It feels like Moab has one end of my rope, and it feels like the promised land has the other one. I feel so close at times and then so distant at other times. I feel so clean one moment and so dirty the next. How do I stop? How do I stop my nonsensical thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behaviors? How do I stop all of that? That's a good question. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. It begins by believing that Jesus alone 
is sufficient for your salvation. That's where it begins. Our journey begins by understanding that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. Sadly, so many believers, you know what they do? They dig wells. They plant vineyards. They drive stakes and they pitch their tents and they settle in Moab, the place of sacrificial religion. Friends, unlike Moses, our grace journey never stops just short of the promised land. You know, his did, right? It stopped just short of it. It was within reach. I can, I can smell it. I can almost taste it. You see, grace commences. It begins in the promised land. Adding religion to Jesus' finished work, you know what it does? It just pulls us, reels us back into Moab. That's all it does. I've come by today to remind us that nonsensical thoughts and feelings and emotions, behaviors, whatever they may be, lose their stickiness when we cleave to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. They lose their stickiness. Grace is a much better adhesive. When one comes into the revelation that they are fully exempt from moral and mortal liability, then they will cross from the desert plains of Moab into a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey speak, you know what they speak of? They speak of abundant fertility. Milk and honey everywhere. Milk speaks of the first principles and honey speaks of healing, healing properties. Do you want to be healed of your emotional hemorrhaging? Then go back to the same medicine cabinet that you began your Christian walk in. It's the medicine cabinet that is written, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, I want to ask you a question. Can you appreciate, at least appreciate, how Moses might have felt after a 40-year journey from Egypt to the Promised Land? Moses, again, was finally within reach of the Promised Land, but he was not permitted to enter in. You see, Moses didn't enter the Promised Land because he was under the old covenant conditions of moral and mortal laws. When God wanted to water the Israelites and their flocks, the first time he told Moses to strike the rock and water gushed forth and he watered millions of people and their livestock. And when it came time to water them again, he told Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses got in his mindset, see, I've already been down this road before. This is not my first rodeo. The first time I did that, I struck the rock with my staff and water came forth. And I'm telling you, you can't water millions of people in their livestock with a garden hose from Walmart, friends. The gushing waters of the deep poured forth in abundant fertility. And so Moses had already seen it happen one way, but God said, this time, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses struck the rock again, disobeyed God. God instructed Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses struck it. 
The rock in the wilderness that held the gushing waters was a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's provision for us. All the goodnesses and all the graces of God flow out of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian believers and he would talk about this incident. And he would tell them plainly, he says, the rock, that rock in the desert was Christ. He revealed, nobody could have seen that back then, but the Apostle Paul said, that rock was Christ. And he is the rock in every desert we face as well. As believers in Christ Jesus, under the new covenant of grace, I'm telling you, I'm going to wear this thing out. We are exempt from moral and mortal liability. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 8, we find these words. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, the land that he's been searching for for 40 years. He showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Soar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. God buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Why? Because they don't want it enshrined. It doesn't matter. Moses is dead. Move on, folks. Moses can't help you. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. In other words, it wasn't his time, really. But it was, in a sense, too. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. You say, boy, Mark, it's scriptures like these that give me cause for concern. I I read them too, folks. Now, they give me some cause for concern. You see, that Moses guy, that, that was a great man of God. He was called the deliverer of the Hebrews. He was the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He was that great counselor that people would come to in the desert. He was the leader in Israel's battles. He was the miracle worker. He was the one who was called faithful in more than one place in the Bible. And as far as I can tell, He only did a couple of things wrong, just maybe a handful of things wrong. I would do more things wrong in probably one week than Moses did in 40 years. But as a result, he was not able to cross over into the promised land. Now, do you see why that would concern some believers, right? Moses, this great guy? 
40 years? I've heard of people driving to a destination. And they just, you know, especially a man. He just wants to get there. Doesn't want to stop. Whole family could want to use the bathroom. No, we got to get there. Is that, is that about right? No, we got to get there, folks. We're almost there. Another 100 miles. Another 100. I've heard of people running out of gas. I mean, three or four or five blocks away from where they wanted to go just because they're like, surely it can get another. The car doesn't care about you, friends. It's a vehicle. It has no emotions towards you. When it's done, it's done, period. And now, you can imagine this with Moses. He's got his tank full, a 40-year tank. And he's coursing his way to the desert, and he's on Mount Nebo, and he can see the promised land, and God said, no, this is as far as you get to go. And so looking at that, this great man of God, it makes my ears almost hot to think about why, why, God? Now listen to me carefully. Under the same covenant that Moses was under, you would have about as much hope as a June bug in a Wisconsin December. That's it. <laughs> you would have no hope. But you and I are not under the old covenant of law. We are under the new covenant of grace. Please make note that even though Moses was disobedient on a couple of occasions, a few times, and it cost him from being able to enter into the promised land, he didn't lose his relationship with God. You say, how would you know that? Were you there? No, I wasn't there. But I'm also familiar when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Mount of Transfiguration? <laughs> Who appeared there with him? Moses and Elijah. Moses is still around. He's there. God is still bringing him into Jesus' company. Yeah, he's still there. There are things in life that are going to cost us dearly. Cost Moses dearly in the natural, but not in the spiritual realm. You are as sealed as you will ever be. You are sealed until the day of redemption. Perfect in God's sight. Moses represented the law, and he would hand off the Israelites to his successor, Joshua, which his name in the Hebrew means Yeshua. Does this sound a little familiar? He's a type and shadow. He's a prototype of Jesus Christ himself taking people, taking people into the promised land. And that's what he does for us. Jesus ushers us into the promised land. Moses couldn't bring us into the promised land. Jesus took us into the promised land. The law can't bring you into the promised land. Grace. Grace is what brings you in. Grace is what keeps you in there. Grace is what walls you in. So beautiful. The law and grace were not there. Moses and Joshua were, were not there. Because it's not that the law is not good. The Scriptures say the law is good, perfect, holy, righteous, converting the soul. The law has a purpose. But the Scriptures tell us after we've come to Christ, we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. 
Now, the church has not awakened to that reality. Those scriptures lay right on the ground like little Easter eggs for two-year-old kids. They're right there. All you got to do is not be colorblind. You'll find them all. They're so easy. They're right there. You say, Pastor Mark, can you explain to me why my emotions and my feelings coagulate at times? They kind of get all bunched up at times. They seem to move from liquid to gel, and then they harden. When I hear something that inspires me, something that encourages me, liquid pours from my eyes. My heart gels with God's love, but in a few days, I'm back to feeling hardened again. Can you tell me what's going on there? Why am I always experiencing the thrombosis of condemnation? When will this tug of war between Moab and the promised land end? When will milk and honey flow in the form of grace and truth and abundantly fertilize my soul? That's my mind, my will, my emotions. When will my mind stop hemorrhaging? Can you help me with that, Mr. Mark? Friend, you are already in the promised land the land that flows with milk and honey. Tears are not the way out of your emotional thrombosis. Begging God for what you already possess is not the pathway to victory nor the ointment for your inflamed feelings. When a believer accepts the grace and truth that they are totally exempt from moral and mortal laws, then Moab will lose grip of the road. You say, can you give me an example? Come on now. Be practical with me, Mark. Can you give me an example of how I can be saved? That means I'm perfectly right with God, just like you say I am. But intermittently act and behave and think like I did before I came to Christ. See, that's the thing that trips us up right there. You go, wait a minute, you said I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You said that, didn't you? Well, the scriptures do say that. How can I think the same way? How can I act the same way? How can I behave the same way? I'm going to tell you how that can happen, okay? You ready for it? Justin, I want you to bring up the next slide. You are looking at a word that you have probably have never seen before in your life. Would you agree with that? Most of you have never seen that word, right? It's the word, it's very easy to pronounce, you, ru, she, all. It's like you, she, all. You, ru, she, all. You, ru, she, all. <laughs> How many of you think I dug back into the Hebrew concordance and pulled that one out? No, I didn't get it from there. <laughs> How many of you think I got it out of the great concordance? Uh, no, no, I didn't get it from there either. I didn't get it from either one of those. Until about three weeks ago, I never saw this word a day in my life, but I'm very acquainted with it now. You want to know why? Because that word right there cost me a lot of pain, cost me a lot of suffering, and it cost me a lot of money. You see, the word Yerushial comes from the word Yerushi, which is the Japanese word for lacquer, L-A-C-Q-U-E-R. Yerushial is the sticky Come on, we've been talking about sticky things here. It's the sticky, toxic, 
oily and irritating substance found in all parts of the poison ivy plant. That's urushiol. It's found in its roots, it's found in its vines, it's found in its stems, it's found in its leaves. And I came into contact with this plant, as you, some of you know my story, and you heard me preach about it the last time I preached. Three weeks ago, when I was working in my yard, and it caused my hands to swell up and my arms to swell, and boy, I itched and scratched till I was, felt like a crazy man. And I broke out in rash everywhere. I had blisters everywhere. I'm just really getting all healed up real good now. I missed two days of work and I had to have my wedding band cut off of my finger because there was no way to get it off. So I'll never forget that word. You say, Mark, what in the world? Come on, what is your point? Urushiol, this irritating and toxic oil, this is what I found out because I began to do so much research. What do these plants look like? I, I want to recognize them before I get into them next time. Oh, I know what they look like now. What do they look like? What do they do? I, I mean, I watch YouTube videos. I studied it. I read articles about it. And one thing that fascinated me is when I came across the articles that said that urushiol, this toxic oil, can remain active on the surface of anything, tools or anything else, including a dead plant for five years. Five years. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it helps us to better understand why believers' thoughts and words and actions continue to emit a less than loving response and they live less than grateful lifestyles at times. Many years after they have already been declared dead to sin. Do you see that? It's because we're dead to sin in our spirit. But this mind of ours got Urushiol in it, friends. It's up there. Very sticky. Very oily. Very nasty. <laughs> I want you to listen to a handful of scriptures that are going to sound like a, speaking of scratching, it's going to sound like a scratch record. You know what a scratch record does? Keeps repeating itself at the scratch, right? It's going to sound like a scratch record because they tell us again and again and again that we are dead to sin. And until we believe this, we will never have victory over our AWOL, runaway feelings and emotions. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, before I read these, I want you to just kind of mentally make note how many times you hear the word dead or death or something pertaining to dying, okay? Here we go. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. He said, look, don't just sin so that you can see that grace works. That's what he's basically saying there. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Next scripture. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Do you hear that? The body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, which we did as a believer, we believe, there's that word again, we believe that we will also live with him. Next scriptures. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Look at these words in the same way. In the same way as what? The same way it happened to Christ. He said in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, what does therefore mean? It means for all of those reasons. Therefore. Folks, I get so excited about this. You know why I get so excited about this? It's like a guy who's on an ocean and he's been searching for a sunken treasure for 15, 20 years, whatever it may be, and he finds it finally. Do you know how excited he is? It wouldn't feel the same way if he went out and found it on the first day. But when you've been pounding the ocean, pounding the sea, and then all of a sudden you discover, maybe that's a better word, you discover the treasure. For that reason, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin, see, that's the only thing that gets in the way. That's the only reason you think you've got a problem with God because you think you're sinning somehow. You're dead to sin no longer has a hold on you. Reckon yourself, count yourselves dead to sin in the same way it happened to Jesus. You are dead to sin. And then he says, for sin shall no longer be your master and you're no longer going to be its slave because you are not under the law. Do you notice how he connects sin and law together in the same breath? He hasn't even inhaled a second breath. He gets to the wrap-up of this, and he says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Oh, so exciting. So liberating. How many of you will agree with me that dead men are exempt from moral and mortal liability? Would you agree with that? Dead men don't apologize. <laughs> no dead man is tried in court of law. You've never seen that. No dead man is sentenced to prison. No dead man has to pay restitution. You are dead to sin. 
You say, Pastor Mark, you have painted some very visual pictures in my head this morning. Principles and truths that have the ability to really help me in life. But other than the dead man of Romans 6, you never showed me a scripture that proved that believers are exempt from moral and mortal liability. You didn't show me no scripture like that. I've read the Bible for a while. I don't ever remember reading that. I don't recall seeing anything quite like that in the Bible. Could you do me a favor before you close your message? Can you show me in the Bible? Can you show me in the Word of God where it tells believers that they are exempt from moral and mortal liability? I absolutely can. My final scripture. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. In other words, don't move. Don't wander. You stand firm on this truth. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is the law, friends. It's the harshness of the law. Now, I highlighted that word free. Do you see that, how I've got that highlighted? Because I wanted to draw your attention to that word right there. It says, Christ has set us free. The word free translates from our Greek concordance just like this. I want you to take a look at it. To liberate, that is to exempt from moral, ceremonial, or mortal liability. Behind that word free in the Greek. I didn't make this stuff up. In fact, it was the inspiration for this message. Jesus said, this is the kind of freedom you have. To be free. What, free for a moment? No, free. Free from what? The things that would bug you. Like what? Like all those moral laws. You're free from that. I don't know a believer on the planet who understands this truth but goes out and sins like crazy. No, it liberates. You see that first word? To liberate. It liberates you. It frees you. It emancipates you. You're done. To liberate. That is to exempt from moral, ceremonial, or mortal liability. (laughs) oh man friends the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these only the finished work of grace has the power has the ability and if you will give it space it has the privilege to release believers from the measuring stick of performance and only grace can massage and convince our hearts that we are exempt. Nothing else will do it. That we are exempt from moral and mortal liability. The gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ is based upon believing, not behaving. Does behavior matter? Yes. 
I said it earlier, of course it does. But bad behavior doesn't endanger our salvation any more than good behavior ensures our salvation. Our good behavior is a love gift, friends. Good behavior is a gift to my wife. It's a gift to my children. It's a gift to my church. It's a gift to my friends and families. It's a gift to my coworkers. It's a gift to me, but it's a gift to my daddy too. Good behavior is a gift. See it as that. It's a gift. I get to give you a gift. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to walk in love and to abound in love and to speak the truth in love. Now, the platelets in our body, in our blood system, are God-given. They are on standby, and they are immediately dispatched to help our bodies when it's been violated or broken. Grace does the same thing for our souls. Grace restores us by leading us in the paths of righteousness. Grace makes us to lie down in green pastures and then nurses our ruptured thoughts, feelings, and emotions into a perfect state of harmony and peace and rest and well-being. Like platelets, grace clumps together with loving kindness and tender mercies to doctor our violated and broken souls. Grace reminds us that we have been placed in an environment where the thrombosis of sin and condemnation do not exist. It's all been left behind on Mount Nebo. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we are one with Christ. To condemn a believer is to condemn Jesus because we are one with him, glued together with him. Are you looking for a suitable helper? Then look to grace. We are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace where we find grace and mercy clumped together to help us in our time of need. When Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, and when Jesus was bruised for our iniquities, the healing properties began to flow and wash us. Therefore, we are complete in Him. Nothing missing and nothing broken. We have been glued together with Christ. And that which has been cured cannot be uncured. Friends, are you struggling? Are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Come on, we get there sometimes, don't we? Experiencing the pain from the thrombosis of despair, maybe fear, whatever it may be. Then do yourselves a kindness and say goodbye to Moab and then cling to the pleasant one, the delightful one, the beautiful one, and the graceful one. I've come by today to drop his name on you. His name is is Jesus Christ. Feed on him. Feed on his milk and honey. Feed on his grace and truth. And watch your soul prosper with abundant fertility. Friends, feeding on the law makes about as much sense as pitching a tent in a poison ivy patch. 
Your itch will never be satisfied and the cost will be too great to bear. So Pastor Mark, come on. Give me one last instruction. (laughs) What do I do then? Come on. Don't leave me on Nebo. (laughs) What do I do? You remind yourself that you are dead to sin. When you sin, you're still dead to sin. But I sinned a few minutes ago. You're dead to sin. Doesn't mean you won't sin, but you are dead to it. You remind yourself that you are dead to sin and that the body ruled by sin was done away with, just like the scripture said. You remind yourself that you are not only dead to sin, but you are alive in Christ, alive in him, and that you stand firm in the freedom which Christ has set you free. What kind of freedom am I talking about? How free am I? Friend, you are so free that you are totally exempt from moral and mortal liability. Amen? Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for taking deep truths and making them simple. Thank you because this ministers to a part of our mind that wicked up the poisonous lies of the enemy. Not only the poisonous lies of the enemy, but the poisonous lies of religion. Help us, Father, when we approach the Word of God to be able to separate the Old Covenant from the New Covenant, to realize that we are dead to sin. We are alive in Christ. This Eurusiel has no hold on us. Sometimes we act a mess. It's just the leftover residue, that oil from our past life. But we thank you, Father, that you don't count our sins against us. That we're under this new covenant of grace. And under this new covenant of grace, we find abundant fertility. Abundant fertility in the areas like joy, unspeakable, and full of glory in the fertilities of rest. Father, I believe that our behavior matters to everybody we come into contact with. But my behavior does not bring me closer to you. I'm already one with you, glued together with you, Christ. A blood that is so sticky that Jesus would actually say, I've not lost even one. Everyone that adheres to me will stay in my hand. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 
632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.